I'm Kate Gibson. Welcome to The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson. And this week, I'm going to introduce myself as a candidate for a master's degree in library science. Uh, and I will tell you why I'm introducing myself. It, it happens to be true, by the way. And I'll tell you why I introduce myself that way uh, in just a moment. And I'm Charlie Gibson, whose education is long since over. Uh, and, and I'm not sure even old dogs can learn new tricks. But anyway, um, we're going to talk this week to Carla Hayden, Dr. Carla Hayden. She has the most important librarian's job in the world. She is the chief librarian of the Library of Congress. The Library of Congress is more than 200 years old, and yet in its entire history, there has never been a woman who is the chief librarian at the Library of Congress, never in over 200 years. And yet there are 80% of the librarians in this country are women. She's also the first African-American to hold the job and it is the absolute top of the profession. It was, for me, a, what, divine moment, almost. The clouds parted, the light came down. It hit, I mean, it really did feel like a private talking to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It, it, when she said to me, you know, we should keep in touch... My immediate reaction was, nah, I can do better. Um, I mean, my immediate reaction was, oh, my God, the Librarian of Congress just told me to call her after I get my master's. The interview to me was really exciting. There may be some points where we go a little bit into insider baseball because, you know, the Library of Congress, in many ways, dictates how other libraries run themselves. They dictate subject headings. They dictate all different kinds of things. They write the law that libraries have to follow in some ways. And so it was, it was a bit, this interview was a big deal for me. Did you have a chance to mention that you were a student in library science? I, I, I think I heard it slip by a couple of times in our conversation. Listen, man, if I could have gotten away with wearing a T-shirt that said I am a candidate for a master's in library science, if I could have gotten away with that, or like those New Year's glasses, if I could have gotten it written in my glass, I would have done that. <laughs> the, the immensity of the Library of Congress was what impressed me so much. I, first of all, I grew up in Washington. I did all my research for my college thesis in there. I wish that my thesis advisor had thought me to be something of a scholar. That was, that was something that I couldn't get to. But to be in that reading room and to be doing the research that I wanted was just, it's thrilling. There are certain rooms that you walk in and they make you feel smarter. They bring you into the gravitas, the majesty of learning, as pretentious as that sounds. Um, and I love those rooms. I love those rooms. She's a very interesting woman, appointed to the job by Barack Obama, a 10-year appointment. Um, she has uh, reveled in the job, I think you'll understand as you hear her. And I loved, Kate, your first question um, about what do you do when you get to be the Librarian of Congress? So here she is, Dr. Carla Hayden. Dr. Carla Hayden, it is wonderful to have you in the bookcase, and uh, we couldn't be more pleased to be talking to somebody who runs an institution that I revere and love, having grown up in Washington, and I know 
my daughter Kate is delighted to have you here as well. I certainly am. I'm getting my master's in library science as we speak. So I, I got to ask, your first day on the job, your first day as Librarian of Congress, what was something you had to see or hold when you got the job? What was the first thing you, you ran to? The first thing, and you can imagine as a lifelong reader, someone who believes in the power of books and reading and libraries to be in the world's largest library, what I really wanted to see was something that touched me personally, the papers of Frederick Douglass. My family's from Illinois. Uh, we had such a connection to Frederick Douglass and his thoughts on reading. And so they took me into the stack areas and I saw boxes and boxes that said Frederick Douglass. And I asked the librarian, could I just look in one box and she <laughs> pulled one out and just at random I pulled a file and I opened it and there in his own handwriting was his description of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln mm. and Ooh. through you could feel the emotion because he crossed out assassinated he put killed murdered and you could just feel it coming through. And I thought, oh, this is what we have to digitize. This is what we have to let people see. I, I don't suppose you'd say it, but I will. You have, I think, the most important librarian's job in the world. And I would suspect going down there in the stacks and seeing Douglas's papers, you'd feel like a kid in a candy store, that this is unbelievable. You'd have to sort of pinch yourself to believe I'm here. Those pinch me moments, and I'm so glad you said pinch me, because <laughs> as you walk down the stacks, you also see rows that say in boxes, Thurgood Marshall. And then you turn, and then you see maybe George and Ira Gershwin. And then you see I am pay. And then you see you're just... Uh, Clara Barton and her diaries where she talks about depression. And then you go into another area and you see the personal library of Ralph Ellison <laughs> that he had on Riverside Drive. So all of the books that he read and the inscriptions of people who sent him material. And oh. so, yes, a kid in the candy store and what really is exciting for me is the opportunity to let more people know about what the library has, what you can download, all the things. Carla, talk to me a little bit about that, because I, I think people know about the Library of Congress, but because of that title, they may think, no, this is just for Congress. This is just to provide research to members of Congress. But the important part is it is really a public library in so many respects as well. It's the ultimate public library. It's the national library for the United States. And yes, it does serve Congress. That's how it started. Uh, 600 reference books for members of Congress in 1800 when they moved to uh, the capital city. And of course, it grew after Thomas Jefferson sold his personal library to Congress and the American people, 6,000 volumes in 1814 after the uh, British, unfortunately, uh, 
use some of those books that were in the Capitol to start the fire in the Capitol. Uh, but he had the largest personal library in the United States. And he said, there's no topic to which a member of Congress may not have occasion to refer. He had a Koran. He had books on horticulture. And so that idea that Congress needed books about every subject grew from that. And then the idea of sharing these materials with not only Congress, but the people it serves. And that really took off after 1870 when the copyright system became a part of the administrative aspect of the Library of Congress. And so books that were published, the librarians were able to select from those materials and the collection grew and grew. So now we have over 170 million items. Half of the collection is in languages other than English. Uh, and we have photographs, I mentioned that, uh, film, manuscripts that include Mozart's uh, writing. It's just, <laughs> you just go on and on. And the contents of Abraham Lincoln's pockets the night he was assassinated. You've been a librarian for a very long time, Chicago, Baltimore, now the librarian of Congress. How would you say, what is your outlook on the way America is reading after the pandemic? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? I'm very optimistic. Uh, you might know that the independent bookstores that were having some difficulties uh, pre-pandemic and there were dire predictions have come back strong. And ebooks. People were downloading ebooks and, and checking out things electronically for, from libraries all over the country and the world. And so people had time and they also had time to listen to books. And that uh, we've been very encouraged, I think, everyone that's concerned about it because people read in different ways. Uh, some people are more visual with graphic novels or they listen to books. And I've had people ask me, well, is, does that count as reading? If you listen to a book? Yes, that's one of the, yes, you are hearing the story. You are having it read to you. And it does count. <laughs> I uh, think that the main reading room in the Jefferson building of the Library of Congress is one of the sacred, most beautiful rooms in America. When you go in there to do research, um, you feel truly like a scholar. What access does the public have to that now? In, when I was a kid, I could just walk in there and, and ask people to bring me the books I wanted. But now, is it more restricted? What's the public relationship with the Library of Congress? The public relationship is still strong. You can get a reader's card that gives you access to the reading room, the, the grand reading room, the main reading room, as well as about 18 other reading rooms within the Jefferson building and the two other buildings that are adjacent to it. And you can get your reader's card at 16. And so think about a high schooler coming in and yes, you can still request materials to be brought to you and you're sitting there and maybe three or four seats down, you might see someone that 
uh, your parents might know about or have read things. Uh, Evan Thomas might be there. Who knows who might be there? And that you know that that's where Alex Haley sat and did his research for his books and Doris Kearns Goodwin and Taylor Branch and just go on. David McCullough started his career doing research and said, hey, this history stuff is pretty good. So one of the basic tenets of, of, of libraries is that they must be open to all people. As I have been doing my readings for class, as I mentioned, I'm getting uh, my master's in library science. It, there are a lot of readings about how librarianship has started to sort of overlap with social work in the name of being open to all people. How do you sort of feel about that? That's been part of the tradition of librarianship. Uh, there were activist librarians uh, throughout the public library history. And when you think about the role that librarians played when the first groups of immigrants were coming into this country, they were very much a part of helping people navigate being in this new country. They were very active in terms of serving young people and teenagers. Librarians have been called feisty fighters for freedom. And now we have t-shirts that say librarians, the original search engines, because we help you. But that strand has been there throughout. You're the first professional librarian to hold this job in in, I guess, over 45 years, which amazes me. How has your uh, public library experiences in Chicago and then running the system in Baltimore, how has that benefited you as the librarian of Congress? It's been very helpful at this stage in the Library of Congress's history. I'm the third since 1802 with public library experience. So not only the third with just library experience, not even a college or academic library, but specifically public library experience. The first was the head of the Boston Public Library, and the second was the Cleveland Public Library. And at those stages of the Library of Congress's history, there was an effort to be more accessible to the general public. And I think that that has been something that has helped me think about and work with the staff members at the Library of Congress now about what can we do to make sure that our digital front door, as we call it, is open. Uh, so that's our website. And what do we put up there? What do we do with programming? How about having an orientation a center and a welcome area and a learning lab called Research or Quest, drawing on that so you can grow researchers or history detectives and scholars of the future. And so that public access part at this time in the library's history, I think, could be helpful as we move forward. It seems as if the issue of banned books and censorship is in the headlines again, uh, as I think we do sort of cyclically every, I don't know, 25, 50 years. Um, why now? And how does the Library of Congress take a position on it? Or does it, you know, in different, in different cases? It's 
interesting, uh, that's the other thread <laughs> through the history of libraries. Uh, Alberto Manguel, in his book, uh, The History of Reading, he has an entire chapter called the, it's called Forbidden Reading. And I can almost quote <laughs> the, the paragraph. He says, as dictators, slave owners, and other illicit holders of power have always known, an illiterate crowd is the easiest to rule. If you cannot prevent people from learning to read, the next best recourse is to limit its scope. And then it talks about book burning and all of the different ways over time that access to ideas, because it's really not the, it's the physical book, but it's what's inside. And once you can't unlearn it, you can't unlock it. Once you read it, it's, you've read it. And so at different times in history, the, these things that we carry around or listen to have uh, been the target of efforts to restrict access because those ideas could be dangerous. And so with the Library of Congress, we're not a circulating library for the general public. However, we collect things that can be loaned to public libraries and college libraries and university libraries. So we are not uh, part of restricting. We're really into access. So if you need that copy of something and no one else <laughs> has it, your local library can interlibrary loan, it's called. The very size and scope of the Library of Congress is amazing to me. I know you have the presidential papers, I think, of 23 different presidents. And I, I read, which absolutely astounded me, that you accept 10,000 new items every day. Every working day. And that's part of the copyright system. We're able to uh, select from the deposits, the copyright deposits. And even though there might be 25 to 30,000 items that are coming in for copyright, and that includes wallpaper, <laughs> you know, a lot of things are being that, but in terms of actual books and materials, that is an entire section of the library that is charged with looking through and selecting. And also one of the most, I think, as a librarian, exciting parts because you're collecting not only for today, but for the future. And you're saying, what would somebody want to read? Let me take you back to your experiences in the Chicago public library system. And then in the Baltimore system that I know you ran for more than 20 years. What is the responsibility, if any, not just to have materials available but to get people to read, to get them oh. into books. It's a big responsibility. That's the whole outreach aspect of librarianship that you make, for instance, in, in most cities and counties, rural areas, you, you see the mobile units that go out to playgrounds or to uh, anywhere that people are, and you take the materials to them. And you also go to community meetings and you talk about what you have. So this outreach component, because so in many instances, people are intimidated by the library buildings 
And if they have some difficulties with reading, different reading experiences, especially if they've been uh, in areas where public libraries weren't as free and as open, they think there's nothing there for me. So this idea of going out, going where people are, being in the supermarkets, there are librarians that go to uh, supermarkets, they go to the food markets on Saturdays when you they have stalls and they're there. They also go to laundromats. And during the pandemic, librarians used drones. <laughs> they, they took their mobile units and they were hotspots. So librarians are doing quite a bit to be out there. And most libraries, and I'm holding the book that I learned about uh, library fines uh, about, are also looking at the barriers. And one big barrier that most libraries are getting rid of is library fines. And they're, especially in some of the challenged communities, parents and caregivers would not let the child sign up for a book because if the kid loses a book, which happens a lot or can't find it, they'd have to pay for the book. The fines were going uh, just like a meter, <laughs> you know, five cents a day that adds up. Uh, and so most libraries now have eliminated library finds, and that has made such a difference. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. You talked a little bit earlier about digitization. Is everything in the Library of Congress eventually going to get digitized? And, um, and, and what are the implications of that? No. Right now, we have 61 million items that are digitized. But what the Library of Congress is digitizing are the unique items that we have like Clara Barton's diaries, the papers of 23 presidents and 36 Supreme Court justices, the uh, original things that are not copyrighted that are in our collections. And so we see that, and rather than the things that are digitized, born digital, you know, popular novels and things, we don't need to digitize those. But what we are concentrating on are what are the things that you could only see in person before. Now you can see letters to Abraham Lincoln that you would have had to come and pull out those manuscript boxes to see. You can go on right now, loc.gov. And we're really excited because we just put up the papers of Rosa Parks to accompany the letter. And you can see in her own handwriting and you could see Thomas Jefferson's draft of the Declaration of Independence with notes by B.F., Benjamin Franklin, and J.A., John <laughs> Adams. And you see that. And then you can see, and here's where that seeing the real thing uh, 
you could also see where they crossed out subjects and put in citizens. Mm. And so we, we think the drafts, the process, for instance, the song, uh, My Favorite Things, it started out, and we love this one, it started out things that I like. And so you see, mm. trying to do it, and then it was like, this is not working. And then <laughs> changed it to my favorite things and then the list of the things. So those are the things that we are concentrating on digitizing the things that you won't see anywhere else. Are you, I mean, I, you know, I was thinking the other day, epistolary history is almost a thing of the past in our present. So what is sort of library of Congress thinking in terms of so much of what we're writing right now is online and via computer and, Etc. We have a, a crackerjack, and this really dates me, but a crackerjack team <laughs> of digital <laughs> librarians, and they have a digital collecting strategy, and they are working on ingesting materials that are born digital. I mean, they are really something, <laughs> and they are bringing in things, and they have uh, something called our library labs. And you can go online and look at those and they're doing all kinds of cool things with that. And they also are connecting, though, with people who are doing digital history making in communities. And we got a grant from the Mellon Foundation to help with that that are curating and using uh, all the different platforms and creating uh, oral histories and doing all types of really cool things. Oh, cool. So that's that's and that helps us attract more tech savvy people to libraries in general, that they can have fun with this and use the tools of today. But they have to think about how are you going to make sure? And this is where the administrators, we have to think about it, too. You have to make sure that you can play this technology or you can transition as technology moves along. Think about floppy disks. <laughs> Remember when that, and now what, what are you going to do with a floppy disk? Make a coaster. <laughs> oh, God, you just dated so, me, too. That's terrible. You know, you know. Mm, so that's mm. the kind of thing that you, but it, those are intriguing questions. And then you get into cybersecurity when mm -hmm. you're doing things that are born digital and the hacking and all of that. And how do you know that it's real? So it's, it's really a burgeoning area in terms of librarianship in general. Carla Hayden, you are a great advertisement for librarians and a great advertisement for reading, which is so critical for people. Um, and I thank you. Couldn't oh, thank, thank you, you more this for being with us. This is really, really fun because there are things that you do, you're doing budgets and you're doing that. But when you get back to what is it really about, I appreciate the opportunity. It's about reading. Carla Hayden, thank you. All right, rapid fire. Book, e-reader, or audio? Book. How much time That's do you easy. <laughs> How much time do you get to read? Not enough. And so when I get a staycation that I'm looking forward to, that's what I'm going to do. And it's going to include the high and the low, <laughs> some mysteries that I haven't been able to read, but some things I should read.
There's one book on alphabetical order. It's okay. <laughs> it's how alphabetical order came into being and what that meant. So just the best thing is to read in bed until three and four in the morning. And if you finish the book, you feel like you've been to the movies, you've been, you've been somewhere and, oh. I, I've watched a whole documentary on font, so it's fine. Um, the most influential book in your life? Bright April. The book, Marguerite D'Angeli. I was seven, storefront library across from PS96 in Jamaica, Queens. I was there all the time. And someone put this book in my hand. It was the first time I saw myself in a book. And that's the significance i think for young people if you're telling them that reading and books are so important and then they don't see themselves represented yep what's yep. that message yep. so when they see it they love it favorite book when you get a chance to read to kids one of the books that i like to read with kids is a book that's talking about is it a book <laughs> And and there's a new one, um, Goodnight iPad. <laughs> so it's a take on Goodnight Moon, but it's about all the devices and getting it down. And at the end, it's just this one thing that you don't need to plug it in. And the kids are holding it and looking at it. And the kids love it because they're laughing and they're, they're going on. So any book that gets kids involved and it relates to what they like and can do and then they can tell you things Carla Hayden obviously a fascinating high point both in my personal and professional life that interview that conversation but uh, what did you get out of it Todd? Well one of the things I got away came away from it was that that you were excited to talk to her uh, and that you wanted to make very clear to her that you were a student in library science but but more than that, I, you know, after many years of doing interviews on Good Morning America, I, I came to realize that, that almost everyone comes to these interviews or conversations, what I hope will be a conversation in our case, with an agenda. And, and I thought her first point and the most important point she wanted to make was she wanted to demystify the Library of Congress, make people understand that the library is not just for Congress, but that it's an asset for all the public, whether you revel in its website or if you do research at the library, it's available to everyone. One of the things that first struck me about her when we were talking was she is a reader. She is a book advocate. She clearly reads almost everything she can get her hands on. And I, I think we forget that about librarians. It's important to remember they are book advocates and they are passionate readers. I think, you know, the refrain for me for that job would be, oh, my God, we have that here? Uh, can I see it? So I don't think I'd get anything productive done. I think I'd just have people bring me things that I could look at and hold. Holding a letter from Rosa Parks, I mean, are you kidding me? Kate, if, if, if the general public perception of librarians is quiet and retiring, I think you may change the entire... <laughs> the entire perception of the profession. Uh, that is hardly something that, that I, some way that I would describe my daughter, Kate. But yeah. Carla Hayden is a, is a jewel in that job. And as we say, she breaks new ground as the librarian of Congress, as the first woman to ever hold the job and as the first 
African-American. Since Carla Hayden is in Washington, we thought it would be appropriate to talk to an independent bookseller in Washington. Politics and Prose is the name of the bookstore. It is something of an institution in Washington. It has been around a lot of years. I have spent a lot of time uh, looking at the shelves of that store. It's on Upper Connecticut Avenue. One of its owners is Bradley Graham, who came to the job after 30 years as a reporter for the Washington Post. And we talked to him about one of the idiosyncrasies of owning a bookstore in Washington because it is a city of protests. Bradley Graham. I think it's a truth at this point universally acknowledged, uh, as they say, that we are a country that is having trouble listening to each other. And I work in a bookstore and I find that uh, echoed greatly when I walk into the domestic affairs section. The titles just seem angry from both sides. It's, It's so divided. There's not many books down the center. There's books that that are virulently anti-Trump, and there are books that are virulently supportive of him. Yes, that's true. And, you know, there's a lot of very, very good reporting that's being done, if not in real time, in near real time, uh, so that we're, we're getting a fuller picture of what's going on behind the scenes. We haven't seen that yet with the current administration, but it's just, uh, I think, a matter of time before we'll be seeing some books about Biden administration and, and some of the challenges that they've, they've faced. I do think that another sign of the, of the times is the um, you know, heightened sensitivity about certain books on certain subjects. One book that we have had some issues with is the Robert F. Kennedy book, Fauci and, and its whole anti-vax approach. You know, that is a very uh, controversial book. We have, over the years, of course, had a number of other controversial books we have made available for sale. But these days, you know, there seems to be a heightened sensitivity by some about, you know, what we're selling with efforts by, by some customers, by even some staff to um, get uh, bookstores not to carry certain books. And that, that gets to the core of what you know, we see as our mission, and many other bookstores I know see as, as, as their mission, and that is to make available most books and let the readers decide, you know, what they want to buy and what they want to read. That position has become itself, I think, more and more controversial in this current environment. You're sort of an anomaly in the area of owners of bookstores coming from a reporting background uh, yourself. What made you want to transition from reporting, as you did for the Washington Post, to owning a bookstore. Well, it's true. I was with the Washington Post for 30 years, and um, then uh, my wife, Lisa Muscatine, and I assumed ownership of politics and prose uh, a little more than a decade ago. You know, going from journalism to book selling is not uh, maybe as big of a leap as it might look. It's both activities still fall within the world of, of ideas. Uh, but over the, over the last decade, you know, politics and prose, and particularly in the last few years, it's become um, more challenging to try to exist as a, as a forum where people will come together and talk calmly and civilly about sometimes uh, controversial subjects. You know, there are fewer and fewer places in, in Washington and, and elsewhere for that to happen. But in in, in 2019, the year before the pandemic, we for the first time saw or experienced 
disruptions, protests at several of our events. Now, they came different parts of the spectrum. I mean, we had a small group of uh, neo-Nazis come uh, march into our store for one event. We had another event disrupted by a group of leftists, you know. So it wasn't just coming from, the disruptions weren't just coming from one part of the political spectrum. You know, we were able to sort of quiet that kind of activity for a while. It did require us to do some training of our bookstore staff on de-escalation techniques. You know, you got to think, what does it say about the times in which we live where bookstore staff need to be trained in how to, you know, de-escalate and avoid protests and demonstrations from getting out of control? One of the big theses of reading is that you should read so that you can understand the other, that you can humanize the other. So it seems antithetical to me that we're at that point that we would need to put booksellers through de-escalation training. It's just antithetical to what we're about. And you think if if people can't even come to a bookstore and listen to one another and politely and and, and let everybody have their say, then we are really, as a society, in, in serious trouble. Brad Graham, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I have spent many, many a pleasurable hour um, in the in the aisles of politics and prose. It is a Washington institution. People should make it a stop when they come to Washington. Thanks very much. Brad Graham, one of the owners, one of the proprietors, one of the booksellers at Politics and Prose, an institution in Washington, D.C. Next week, I'm really excited about talking to John Irving, who has been a best-selling author for years and years and years now, who is himself a wonderful storyteller. So next week, John Irving. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Eru Ekpenobi, and Elizabeth Russo. So, as per usual, we're going to have our main guest take us off the air, Carla Hayden, who's read hundreds of books, so nobody should know how to end it better. The quote by Frederick Douglass, who talked about in his autobiography what it meant when he learned that reading was the key. And he said, once you learn to read, you'll be forever free. <laughs>